Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's another episode of Business of Film, episode number 58. My name is Jesse Eichmann, and you're listening to a crafttruck.com podcast. Uh, this week, we've got a special guest for you. His name is Jeff Willis. Jeff is a VP of Business Affairs and Production over at the Weinstein Company. Uh, so we get into some, to some really interesting discussion uh, just about a whole host of different topics related to really the business of film. Uh, I was fortunate enough to to find Jeff on Twitter, uh, another one of our, I guess, our, our Twitter finds, which is kind of cool. Like, it's, uh, it's, it's fun how the community is expanding and we're finding different people and having these conversations with, with people who are, I guess, helping the independent film community. And Jeff's one of those guys. Uh, first of all, he's a stand-up guy. I'd never spoken to him before. Uh, but he speaks I- exceptionally well on the topic of uh, the film business. And uh, just, I-, I would encourage you to, first of all, check Jeff out on Twitter and just what he talks about on Twitter and just some really interesting stuff regarding his time at the Weinstein Company, how he got into the business, uh, things that you should be thinking about when you're uh, producing and doing contract negotiations. So uh, I'll leave it at that. Uh, really happy uh, that Jeff was able to join us on this episode. And I want to just say thank you to everybody out there who's been listening to the show and helping spread the word a bit. Uh, it's just, it's awesome. Uh, the show's growing, the, the listenership is growing, and that's really encouraging because it sort of keeps us motivated to keep doing this, and it's nice to know that there is uh, an audience like you who's out there who's listening to this and, and taking something from it. So we, we want to hear from you. We want to, to give you more of what you want. So you can reach us at Craft Truck uh, on Twitter. You can send us an email anytime, coffee at crafttruck.com. And uh, please do, if you're, if you're grabbing this off of iTunes, please drop us uh, a, a few stars there. Um, you know, five stars is great. We'll take it. And uh, any note that you want. So enjoy this episode. Jeff Willis, episode number 58. Well, well, again, thank you for taking the time this morning. Like, you're, you're waking up early uh, to to join us here on this show. Are you actually in the office right now, or did you did you roll into to work early to, just to do this, or are you sitting in your pajamas at home? Uh, no, I'm actually uh, I'm actually sitting ready to go to work at home. Uh, I just decided to sleep in a little bit. I usually get up pretty early to write anyway, but uh, I just figured I'd uh, I'd uh, enjoy the uh, the slower traffic later in the morning anyway. So I, I just for our audience here, uh, I, I I met up with uh, with Jeff on Twitter. He was gracious enough to to give us some of his time this morning. And uh, Jeff, maybe you could just tell our audience a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, so um, I am uh, currently uh, Vice President of Business and uh, Business Affairs and Production Administration at the Weinstein Company. So uh, my day job is kind of doing all of the contracts and payments and uh, and business affairs production type stuff uh, for the studio. And then um, and then in my spare time, I write and uh, and attempt. Uh, produce and uh, and a few other creative projects on my own. So I, I think that there's a lot of stuff here to unpack. I, I want to uh, talk obviously about what you do in your in your day job in detail. I want to talk about some of your your online uh, stuff that you do on Twitter, which uh, which is how obviously uh, I discovered you. But maybe you can just take a moment and just describe what does business affairs really mean when you're at a company the size of the Weinstein Company doing the volume of work that the Weinstein Company does, what does that actually practically translate to for you and your desk, you know, on a day-in, day-out basis? Well, so, you know, business affairs is 
Yeah, the Langston Company is really more of a small company model than it is a studio model. At a studio, you've got separate business affairs and legal affairs departments. So they do work hand-in-hand hand and work quite frequently together. Um, but business affairs is the deal-making and the kind of the day-to-day uh, you know, business need to support creative distribution, marketing, whatever else that you, know, you would need a deal for on a production or in, related to a mo- in relation to a movie. Um, and then legal affairs is the side of the other side of business affairs, which is the the actual drafting and the uh, the actual um, contract negotiation and the deal terms and the language and things like that. At a smaller company, uh, those those departments are typically combined into business and legal affairs, um, and that's uh, so then. You know, someone in that capacity at a smaller studio is responsible for everything from the negotiation of the deal all the way through the final executed document and its very precise language. Um, I'm actually not an attorney, so my capacity at the company um, is for anything that doesn't involve the actual uh, negotiation of the specific language of the contract. So um, smaller type uh, deals, at least the broad terms, um, are things that I oversee as well as um, the... Uh, the production budgets and communicating with other departments like physical production, what contractual obligations we have when we do a budget or when we're getting ready to go into production, what, what kinds of things we may owe in terms of rights, um, all of that kind of stuff that basically uh, doesn't require a lawyer to draft. So I guess would it be fair to say, and I don't want to assume something, so I'm just going to ask, would it be fair to say that you uh, do the negotiations, uh, settle on the deal points, then hand it over to a lawyer to do the drafting, or are you managing the contracts once the deal points have been drafted by the legal side? I usually manage them once they've gotten there. In in most industries, business affairs is overseen by a by a non lawyer type who then hands off to a lawyer. In the entertainment industry, it's much more common to find a lawyer or an attorney in the in the kind of upper levels of a of a department because you know a lot of times the the reasoning is. If, you know, why hire a business affairs person that just has to hand it off to a lawyer when the top guy can be, you know, a business affairs guy and a lawyer? Right. So, um, in, in a lot of situations, um, it's mostly attorneys handling negotiation, and then I'm there in more of an administrative capacity where once the deal is done, I'm responsible for making sure that all of the things that have been agreed to are being honored and the timelines are being met uh, in a way that's consistent with the contract and keeping an eye out for any uh, any issues or difficulties. So uh, before we, I guess, talk about some of the, I guess, the, the, the I guess, specifics of certain uh, businessy types of things, how did you find your way into this job? I, I don't suppose someone just stumbles into being a VP of Business Affairs at the Weinstein. Like, uh, and a lot of people who, you know, want to be in the business of film or want to be in, in, in the film business, uh, get into the business, they find their way in through some, some of any myriad of, of paths and ways. And so what, what was your way into the business and, and this job? Uh, well, so I went kind of the, the traditional, uh, <laughs> you know, start from the bottom and work your way up kind of a thing. Um, I came to L.A. to go to film school with, you know, no connections. I didn't know anyone in this business. I just knew I wanted to work in movies and, and work in, on the side of the industry. So my last year of film school, I interned at a production company um, and really enjoyed it. I was uh, I did script coverage and all the kinds of things, copy runs, you know, all the kinds of things that interns normally do. Um, Which company? And then, 
that this was uh, Beacon Pictures. They did uh, Air Force One and Bring It On. Yeah, um, they, they don't exist anymore, though, do they? Uh, they do. Um, they've gone through a couple of restructurings over the years, um, but Beacon Pictures, the entity, actually still exists, um, and their uh, their big uh, thing right now is the show Castle on ABC. Um, okay. Okay. But yeah, over the years, there's been a lot of kind of. Um, I think I think Beacon Communications was the first company, and then it got acquired, and and you know something got divvied up, and then it split again. So, but there is still a Beacon in some form or another that, that uh, that's working on things these days. Fair enough. Um, so uh, sorry, I, I cut uh, you off there. Yeah. So so you so no, you were no interning problem. at Beacon. Uh, so yeah, so I interned at Beacon for uh, for about six months, and then uh, then after I graduated, I literally emailed, you know, the two guys that I worked with um, just about every other week and said, hey, I graduated. Is there a job? Can I get a job? You know, is there an assistant desk I can be on? And it took about six months of harassing them until someone had left, and it just happened to be on a business affairs desk. So I said, you know, sure, why not? I'll do business affairs. That works for me. Um, at the time, I had thought that I would just kind of get my foot in the door and then transition over to creative, but business affairs ended up being something that uh, that I really enjoyed and kind of stuck with it. So over the years, I've just gone to uh, different companies and worked in different capacities. I, I was a creative exec for a little while. Um, I've done operations and physical production, um, but I, I ended up really just uh, just kind of clicking with uh, with business affairs and physical production, and I stayed with it. And uh, when there was an opening at the Weinstein Company uh, for something in that department, I, I kind of jumped on it. So, uh, how long have you been with the Weinstein Company now? I've been with the Weinstein Company about four and a half years, um, and uh, and I've been you know working uh, after graduation in this industry for just about ten. So it took about six years of experience elsewhere to uh, to, to get the skill set enough that the Weinstein Company uh, you know was interested in hiring me, and then uh, and then yeah, the, the past four and a half four and a half years has been uh, have been at uh, TWC. It's funny. I, I I haven't mentioned this yet on the podcast, but. Um, I suppose it's worth mentioning now because uh, your 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 background in history is actually uh, very similar to mine, which is why I find this this conversation uh, interesting to me. I, I started out as well uh, as uh, as a business affairs guy at Alliance Atlantis, if you remember that company back in two thousand, um, and then transitioned into a, a VP of business affairs and co production, doing financing and structuring for a company called uh, Blueprint, which then got. Uh, uh, Acquired by what is now in Entertainment One, so I've actually spent my life as well. I th- I think doing many of the same things that that you have. So, but the the difference is you're uh, I think operating at a much higher level uh, in the studio, quote unquote, studio system or the or the mini majors. So, w- I'm just wondering if you can tell us what are some of the major challenges that. Uh, I I don't, I don't want to necessarily peg this to the you know the the studio level because I know not everybody that listens to this podcast is, is is working in the studio world. But what are still some of the major challenges that you see when it comes to? And, and obviously, this could be a very large question. So I want to segment this question into different sort of baskets when it comes to just let's call you know rights acquisitions. So when you're dealing with acquiring a property, so at the beginning of a project. And your studio, you're you're trying to go out there and negotiate deals. What are some of the challenges, contractual hurdles, the things that are always deal points that come up, and that uh, filmmakers on either side of the table, studio level and the filmmakers themselves, need to be thinking about? Well, you know, I think I think the the number one issue that you know everyone always conflicts on is is the money. Um, 
And, you know, I think it's worth making the distinction, you know, that when you're talking about even even a mini major like the Weinstein Company or a Lionsgate or, you know, Relativity, our operating budgets and our production budgets are so much smaller than the studios. But, you know, a lot of people consider us in the same category. They don't consider us a small, you know, small one-off kind of production company that, that really doesn't have financing. We do. Um, but a lot of times, you know, we, we don't make the, you know, $150 million movies that, uh, that some of the studios do. So it's a lot of times very difficult to agree on the money when you look at the upside that the Weinstein company can provide, which is, you know, it, it, you know, in, in essence, a, a theatrical movie that is just as successful as, a, a you know as a studio release feature, but you know at the startup doesn't quite have the same uh, funding or the same resources. So money is always a sticking point. How how much upfront you know and creatively structuring deals to get uh, to acquire the rights for an amount that makes the talent happy, but you know doesn't doesn't put our production budget so far beyond you know the the feasible range that it, that it becomes difficult to make. So, um, so let, let me actually just unpack that for just just a, a moment because I would assume and well I don't have to assume you guys are working with some of the top talent obviously in the world uh, writing creative and otherwise. So are you saying that there's discrepancy between talent that would work for say the studio at one price but work for a mini major like the Weinstein at a different price so their quote uh, the, ta- the the quote of the talent therefore just becomes different depending on what company they're working for yeah I mean it's essentially you know when you when you deal with talent quotes uh, you know that's um, you know you got essentially a salary history you're, you're trying to meet and obviously every talent wants you know, every actor, every writer wants to get their quote. They, they've made that much in the past and want that much in the future. Um, the problem is, you know, if we're making a movie for, you know, say $30 million, um, you know, a, an actor's $8 million quote is almost, you know, 30% of the budget. And it's, there's not a lot left to throw, you know, to put into what goes up on the screen if you're paying an actor's full freight on a lower budget movie. So, what we typically do is try to structure deals that where the actor can still get to that quote number just at a point, you know, after the movie's been released, after the movie's had some success. Um, so we employ a lot of uh, bonus structures, box office bonuses, um, larger, uh, better definitions of, you know, participation, uh, award bonuses, things like that, where we can, you know, get the actor some, some considerable money based on the likely success of the film rather than, uh, you know, building that full quote number into the budget and, and seeing the number skyrocket. Okay, so I, I'm going to ask you uh, a question, and I, I don't necessarily need you to answer this from the perspective of the Weinstein Company, I, I, but I would obviously just like to get your opinion on it in general, which is... Obviously, things like box office bonuses or bonuses that are tied to uh, the box office as stated in Variety uh, or any other types of bonuses, you know, people are circumspect when it comes to bonuses and trying to actually uh, see some kind of back end, uh, real back end that actually is meaningful because, you know, we we hear the horror stories. The movie makes $100 million and, of course, there's, there's no net profit. And I mean, we can go into the reasons as to why that is, but uh, just from your from your perspective, how does one meaningfully structure a deal where because no, nobody's an idiot, the agents aren't idiots, the actors aren't idiots, and the producers aren't idiots. So, uh, how do you meaningfully think about the best ways to structure a deal where everybody can be 
happy that they've actually made a deal with talent that makes sense. Yeah, so I think that, you know, the the big issue that, that we deal with and that I think, you know, that I always try to point out to people is everyone knows the whole net points thing and that, you know, and everyone says, oh, if you agree to net, you know, you'll, ne- you'll never make money on the movie and creative studio accounting and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I think the problem, though, is that a lot of people assume that that means that you need to ask for gross or nothing. And that's, that's often difficult because gross points are really difficult to get. And they're really, you know, um, they're really not feasible for a company um, to just give away, you know, tons of the, you know, tons of the gross points of the movie before it's even profitable. So what I always tell people is, you know, it's not that net points are bad. It's that the specific definition, how the net points are calculated is what's important. So if you are, if you have a, you know, a savvy lawyer or agent who understands how cash flow works when you make a movie and at what point, you know, different people kind of take their share. If you under, if you have someone who understands that and can make a deal for, you know, a net point definition that has a meaningful calculation, then there's, there's a, there's a great potential for, uh, for, you know, for earning a lot more money than you anticipated on the back end. Um, but absent that, absent someone who completely understands, you know, how to really get into, for example, a net point definition and really break down who gets paid what and what's withheld and that kind of stuff. Um, bonuses are a great way of kind of circumventing all of that because they're the way that they're tied is it's still a contingent compensation, but it's contingent on a what's what's really an objective measurement. It's not the studio gets a chance to look at it and define it and deduct stuff. It's the box office bonus, it either made it or it didn't, and everybody can look up that information on IMDB or Variety or Box Office Mojo. Um, so bonuses are a great way of telling someone, yes, we'll pay you more money, and yes, it will be at a later point, but you don't have to go through, you know, an entire, you don't have to audit me to figure out that you get your bonus or you don't. Uh, so uh, just on that train of thought then, I'm, I'm going to just push this a little bit further. One of the difficulties when you have box office bonuses, bonuses tied into a contract is that eventually the producer is going to want to uh, sell the movie and thus that contract to a distributor. Now, uh, in your case, I'm not sure whether this applies to any output deals that you may have or whether you're actually doing the distribution yourselves, but uh, I, at some point in general, that agreement has to be pawned off to a distributor that will have to likely assume the obligation of paying that bonus. Um, or is or are you guys already doing the, the distribution and therefore that's kind of built into your your own in, internal calculation. So, I, and I'm kind of separating that in, into two into two questions. One is, I'm curious about the specific situation of uh, the, uh, I guess, the Weinstein's, but more just generally. And if you want to answer on the more, uh, I guess, you know, general and abstract level, the question still remains. At some point, the filmmakers left with a contract that either they have to honor themselves or the distributor has to honor on their behalf. And if the distributor is not willing to honor it, they may not even be able to sell the movie. Right. So, yeah, so this is where, uh, you know, this is where a little bit of creative negotiation gets into. Yeah, at a company that distributes their own films, then, then it is essentially their obligation. But speaking about it, you know, generally from the sense of, let's say, an independent filmmaker who's making a movie and then looking to sell it to a distributor, I mean, that, that's exactly the issue, is any, any deal you make, is essentially your obligation unless you can get someone else to assume it. So 
my perspective going into it, if I were an independent filmmaker, is I either need to uh, either either get the distributor to assume those bonus obligations, assuming it does well, or I need to sell the movie for an amount that covers that just in case. So, um, and I've, I've had this conversation, I think, a couple of times on Twitter with different people, but it's like, uh, you know, um, when you make deals with, when you do a super low-budget movie, if you're making a $10,000 movie with your, with your friends, you know, a lot of times those, you know, the salaries and that kind of stuff is usually deferred because you can't afford it. So you've got a lot of people, you know, working in essence for free up front, hoping that the movie does well, uh, you know, that you can sell it or that you can distribute it or that you can get a theatrical release. Um, and what I always tell people is, you know, you should have a defined agreement where you know what these, what these guys are going to make. Um, so yeah, you may, maybe the DP may be working for free, but you've got an agreement in place where, you know, if this movie sells or if it does well, eventually he'll get his $50,000 or whatever it is. Um, so what I tell people to do is when you make those deals and you know how much you've committed, you know, somewhere, you know, out in the, you know, somewhere out in the future to how much you're going to pay your, your cast and your crew and for all these obligations, um, you know, build your minimum guarantee, your NG that you're going to sell it for as the amount it took cost you to make the movie plus all of those salaries or get the distributor to assume them. Because either way, <laughs> you, the last thing you want to do is make a movie for 10 grand and then sell it for 50 and then realize you've got 100,000 in, you know, in contingent compensation due to your crew that the distributor didn't cover and, you know, you're stuck with. Right. So uh, let me let me just sh- shift gears here. Uh, just uh, I'd love to just sort of peek behind the curtains, if I may, in terms of what it's like at the Weinstein Company. Um, what I mean, what what can you tell us just about sort of I guess the uh, the aggressiveness uh, with which uh, the company goes after product? Uh, how? I mean, not necessarily, I mean, if there's any specific examples that you can give about just uh, anything that, that's actually, you know, uh, interesting stories inside of the company, I mean, certainly I'd love, love to hear those. But obviously, being an executive of the Weinstein Company and our audience, people, I'm sure, just want to know what it's like to work there. Um, and just anything that you're, you know, willing and, and able on a professional level to share with our audience about kind of the day-to-day there um, and working with, you know, obviously amazing people uh, is, would be just, I'd, whatever you're, whatever you're willing to share that's, you know, not going to breach any confidentiality, uh, you know, we, w- I'd love to peek behind the curtain a bit with our audience. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, again, you know, it, it's a little difficult with, uh, you know, with confidentiality, non-disclosure, but, you know, it's a very exciting place to work. Um, you know, Bob and Harvey are both very, very creative, very visionary guys who, you know, know a good movie when they see one and know a good project when they want to pursue it. Um, and it's exciting to be at a place where you have, you know, top guys who still go out to, you know, to a festival like Cannes or Sundance and can find a movie like, like they did with, you know, the King's Speech or the Artist, where they can sit there and watch a movie and say, that's going to be a huge movie. We need to get that one. Um, and very similar, very similarly, guys that can, you know, read a script or look at a project or look at something that's coming in for development and, you know, and realize that it's something they really want to get behind and a project that really has a lot of potential to succeed. Um, and, you know, we've got, uh, we've got, 
by most standards, you know, not a lot of employees compared to a studio or compared to a Lionsgate. So a lot of us are working on a lot of different things at the, you know, all at once. And it's a really exciting place to be. It's a dynamic, uh, you know, no two days are really the same. Um, even though the, you know, even though the work is kind of the same, each project, you know, creates a new challenge. Um, and as I mentioned before, you know, with, um, with lower budgets than a lot of the studios, but still working with the same caliber of talent that the studios do, a lot of times, you know, making a deal or getting a project working is a very, uh, is as much creative as it is a business pursuit where you're trying to, you know, find a way to make all of these, uh, all of these big elements work together in a way that makes sense for the, you know, the bottom line of the production. So it's an exciting place. Um, you know, I've, I've been there four and a half years, so I, you know, I've, I've clearly enjoying it. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, it's been exciting. I mean, I've, I've learned more at this job than probably, you know, my last few combined just because, there's so many different aspects going on and different elements to kind of dive into that it's been uh, it's been a heck of a ride. Do you feel that the challenges that exist for the Weinstein Company in terms of being able to finance and package or just put a project together exist uh, similarly for somebody who's just an independent filmmaker trying to make a movie? I mean, do you, like, what are the differences in the challenges that exist there? Like, can they make? any movie they want, basically, like within that, I don't know, 30 to $50 million range, give or take, whatever, um, it would just with a snap of a finger, if they, if they make that decision, or do they still have to go out to the international market and pre-sell the product and make sure that, you know, that there's, I mean, because like, the traditional financing structure for, you know, let's say a 5 to $15 million movie, pre-sell a few territories, maybe some gap, uh, a little bit of private equity, some soft money, you're kind of there. Um, oversimplified, of course, but... I'm wondering whether that same model, as a financial model, is sort of what what goes on for the mini major uh, for for films financed by a mini major studio like the Weinstein's. Yeah, you know, I have found that you know whether it's a um, you know whether it's a company that has its own distribution or even a you know a smaller company that doesn't, and and I've worked there at places like that too. You know, the process is really the same. It's it's about you know getting the money for the budget through really whatever means you can, whether, whether that means, you know, independent investing, whether that means a, you know, a bridge loan or, you know, gap financing to cover for pre-sales. Um, you know, the, the process is really the same. It's going wherever you can to, you know, basically, you know, build a budget however you can and then use that budget to, you know, to make the movie and then you, you release it. So, and we have, you know, a great distribution team that handles, you know, all the domestic stuff, and we have partnerships with a lot of international distributors. So it really is a matter of finding that sweet spot, whether it's, you know, whether it makes economic sense to sell foreign territories or distribute it ourselves, whether it makes sense to, you know, get a, get a loan versus, you know, finding an independent financier. Um, it's really very, you know, project dependent, but the process I, I see, at least as far as I've seen, is very similar whether you're a, you know, single independent filmmaker or a company like the Weinstein Company. Everybody's, you know, still trying to, you know, cobble together a budget using, you know, the, you know, using any means they can, they have access to. So it was kind of from where you sit, uh, just in, in general, as somebody who sees a lot in the business, what's your kind of state of the union right now for the industry, the way films are being made for uh, the value of product in the marketplace? If you were to just kind of take a snapshot of, what you feel the business is, you know, is like these days. Uh, what can you kind of surmise or, or summarize for uh, for people who are listening? I think that I think it's 
definitely exciting time. Um, I, I think that it's changing a lot more rapidly than it used to, but I think that the opportunities that are out there are, are really incredible. Um, and especially with, you know, the ability of people to make, you know, low cost digital features and things like that. The, the barrier to entry is a lot lower. That does come with the, you know, the downside to that is that with a lower barrier, you have a lot of product to sort through and, you know, not everybody that can make a movie necessarily should, <laughs> Just, you know, so it's, um, it, it kind of, there are always challenges, but the challenges have just shifted from, you know, from being able to have those unique voices, be able to physically make the movie to being able to distinguish those unique voices from, you know, the deluge of other stuff that's out there. Um, but I think it's, I think it's an exciting time. You know, home video is, you know, is a lot less, prominent of a moneymaker than it used to be. Um, but, you know, the things that have stepped in have been, you know, the video on demand stuff, the Netflix and the Hulu and the, you know, instant and, and that kind of stuff. So I think that it's, you know, it's an exciting time. I think that, you know, by and large, our industry is relatively recession proof in that, you know, it doesn't have the huge dips and dives that, you know, a financial market or a real estate market might have. Um, and I think it's just a matter of, you know, being able to be adaptable and figure out the new the new way of doing business whenever a new model comes in and the old one goes out. Uh, fair, fair enough. Um, do you mind if I, I'm going to sh- shift gears now uh, just to maybe a couple other big big picture topics? Uh, have you actually been following the the, the gravity case out of curiosity? Uh, no, I actually haven't been following it that closely. Okay, so uh, yeah, I, I was going to ask you what what you thought about what was going on there, uh, just just because it's just a unique perspective just the whole right situation uh with tess garrett's and basically suing suggesting right. yeah that, I mean, yeah uh but it, it, it is kind of complicated but I, I was just curious whether or not you you've been following it, it, it at all and how to take on it but if you don't that's no problemo uh yeah, like, you know, I do know of the case and, and the general premise behind it what's really difficult is you know and having and having been through a few infringement lawsuits myself it's really tough to to really make any kind of you know any kind of judgment on it without seeing everything you know and it's one of those things where you know it wouldn't surprise me it wouldn't surprise me either way if it was you know if it was an issue of an infringement or if it was an issue of similarities that you know that don't quite meet the you know the burden of proof for infringement um either way it's kind of tough but you know it's it's one of those things where Anytime you get one of these lawsuits or, or any lawsuit really, I mean, there's just, there's so much, you know, there's so much in the way of like, you know, what meets the, what meets the statutes and what meets the, you know, the criteria that most of us don't see unless you're actually, you know, part of the case that it's, it's hard to make judgment calls on that. But, you know, it's, um, it's a big deal. I mean, the last thing, a, the last thing a company wants to do is get stuck with, uh, with a reputation for stealing work, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I was going to kind of just, uh, segue that that into just the notion of of what underlying rights really means, uh, because ultimately that is one of the things that companies, any company, uh, you know, is is very uh, concerned about. You know, whether or not they're, they're actually optioning something that they actually have the rights to, or that I guess in in this particular case, uh, just the general idea that you, you can't really copyright an idea. So, and this, uh, you know, specifically applies to somebody who, you know, and to, to, to producers who are looking to option material, 
and I think you've you've spoken about this a little bit, you know, uh, optioning and rights on in your in, in your Twitter feed about what underlying rights really means, what uh, producers need to look out for when they are optioning uh, projects and sort of the rights that they get. And I'm just wondering if you could just sort of just talk about um, just from uh, I guess in your in your in your perspective, you know. What are the processes and thinking that producers need to be concerned about when they're going after properties, properties that they want to uh, option and turn from, say, a novel or some any kind of underlying right into a feature film? Right. So, I mean, really the uh, concern with when you're acquiring something is obviously you want to make sure you've acquired everything. You don't want to acquire something and then realize that somewhere down the line someone else gets a piece of it or someone else has a claim to it. Um, so what's really important if you're a producer from, from a business standpoint is to have an agreement with the person you're acquiring the rights from that has representation, representation and warranties in it, which is basically the creator or the owner of the material representing to you that everything they're giving you is everything there is. Um, and that's really important because what we'll do is, you know, we'll acquire a screenplay or a book or something like that. And what, 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 writers do when they sign that is they're basically saying, look, I'm saying that I'm the owner of this. No one else was involved. I own everything, everything, you know, covered. I'm good. Um, and if anything else comes up, then it's their responsibility. And that is important because it, it protects producers and companies from, you know, all of a sudden having a writing partner come out of the woodwork and say, Oh, you owe me 50% or, uh, you know, or another producer coming up and saying, Oh, wait, I control those rights. Um, and what that and where that delineation typically is, is you know, representations and warranties are that you know to the best of the person's knowledge that's selling it, they control it, and uh, and the company then will typically indemnify the owner against any any claims that aren't that don't have merit. So, for example, um, if if we acquired a screenplay and someone down the line showed up and said, wait, I, I was attached to that project a long time ago. I have rights and you owe me $250,000 for a producer fee. That is something we could legitimately go back to the owner and say, I thought you told us you had all the rights. Where, where's this guy coming from? Um, so that's the important thing for our protection. But then how we protect the writer in, in exchange is if we acquire the rights, we make the movie and somewhere down the line, someone sues us and says, Hey, that, that was my idea too. Then typically our insurance policy or the production insurance policy will cover the writer and allow us to defend him against a frivolous lawsuit. Right. And that would be a, an Eno policy for anybody who's listening, if I'm not mistaken, that you yeah. would, that you would take out of. Yeah. It's, it's typically a policy that covers just about anybody or any kind of, any kind of hospital litigation, um, related to, you know, the rights or creative or, or emissions and that kind of stuff. Um, is general, the general idea is that, uh, you know, the company will protect the writer if it's, you know, if it's a lawsuit related to the movie that they had nothing to do with. And if it is the writer's fault, then they're on the hook. <laughs> so we're, we're flying, man. We're, 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 we're just burning through topics here. Uh, but I wanted to touch, I wanted to touch base uh, with you on your Twitter personality or your online personality, because uh, again, that's how uh, I, I found you. And I just want to say to anybody who's listening, if you haven't checked out Jeff's uh, online Twitter uh, account, you you should. You need to. Uh, Jeff, can you tell everybody what your your Twitter account is? Yeah, so it's at uh, J Willis eighty one J W I L L I S eighty one. Um, and really, I mean, what I really use Twitter for is, you know. Um, 
it kind of like kind of like you, Jesse, with this podcast. You know, I I, I noticed there's a there's a real lack of you know business conversation about this industry. There are a lot of people that will tell you the best way to write a screenplay or how to approach an agent or you know what to do, you know how to sell your script, that kind of stuff. Um, but there really is a lack of information out there about practical you know business topics for writers, filmmakers, people out there that want to do this themselves and maybe don't have the benefit of you know working for ten years in this industry or having kind of an insider's perspective. So. What I do is, you know, time permitting, which unfortunately isn't nearly as often as I'd like to, but I try to, you know, once every week or a couple of weeks, um, you know, do a tweet series about a, t- a particular topic that may be of interest to writers or filmmakers. So it could be, uh, you know, about how an option deal looks or what the different clauses mean or what's really important to know about copyright. Um, and the idea is just that someone can look at my Twitter feed or any of the people that are kind enough to aggregate these tweets and post them, you know, in a collected form somewhere. Um, that really they can look at them and get a basic understanding of what they need to know, what they need to be worried about, you know, what they don't need to be worried about in the case of, you know, myths and, and rumors and things like that. Um, and the idea is just to prepare people to, to make sure that everybody can go into every deal they make and every project they work on with, uh, you know, with wide open eyes, um, you know, without getting into any of the stuff that you know, would constitute a breach of contract or, or a breach of confidentiality. What I'm trying to give people is, you know, basic understanding of how the business works so that when they have a script deal on the table or when they have someone approaching them saying, yeah, I'd like to work with you, um, they're not beholden to an agent or a lawyer to explain everything to them. They can, you know, kind of take charge of their own destiny and say, you know, I do understand how that works. You know, tell me about this or explain this aspect to me um, and be more more informed and more uh, and more knowledgeable about the, you know, the business side of their of their craft. Yeah, it, it's a weird thing that the, the film business. It's one of these things where you really you can't learn it unless you're in it. And uh, I think one of the great things about your Twitter feed is is it, it's very insightful. Uh, I love the the tweet series is that you do. I definitely encourage anybody who's listening uh, to check out those tweet series. He's got many Jeff. You have many different topics going back for many different years, um, and uh, and and they're really cool. They were definitely definitely. Check them out, and, w- and we'll put a, a link on the show notes. Uh, this will be episode number 58, so anybody who wants to uh, uh, check out some of that, they can go to crafttrack.com slash BOF58, and you'll, you'll find uh, this episode and links to some of those those tweet series. Uh, so just because I think we only have about five minutes uh, left with you here today, um, can you just talk a little bit about the uh, – the, the, I mean, because we, we, we touched on it earlier on um, – just the state of distribution and the challenges that filmmakers have when they try and get their film distributed. And I'm going to just I'm going to I'm going to frame this just with I guess not something anecdotal, but just kind of that that general example, which is there is to a certain extent that uh, that high level thinking that they're going to make a movie, bring it to a festival like a Sundance or a Cannes or even a uh, a fantastic fest or whatever it might be. And that that's what their primary method of recruitment is going to be. But the practical reality is the majority of films are not going to make their money back in that way because the majority of films aren't going to get distributed via the kind of distribution deal that one would, you know, idealize themselves as getting it at, at, at a festival. So what do you say to the filmmaker who's just trying to make a, you know, make a movie and how they need to be thinking about distribution and the market, uh, up front. 
Well, I, I, yeah, I think that when, when you go into a, into making a movie independent, um, the things you have to be aware of, you know, to your point, distribution, but I, I think also uh, post-production is a very important thing to keep in mind, too. I mean, the chances of a, the chances of a company acquiring and distributing your movie that you've made for 10 grand or 50 grand with absolutely no additional work is pretty much slim to none. Um, they're they're going to want to, you know, remix the sound or, you know, fix a scene that isn't quite right or color corrected or whatever it is they think that needs to be done. So I think the most important thing that you need to do as an independent filmmaker is keep those things in mind. Keep in mind that there will likely be some additional work that needs to be done. So when you're making talent deals, for example, with the actors, make sure you build in additional days that they need to be available, you know. And, and again, you can you can negotiate this however you want, but generally a specific number of days subject to their availability where they need to be available and able to reshoot or, you know, edit or do ADR or whatever it is that the studio thinks they need to be things need to be done to bring the movie up to the quality they're looking for. Um, I think that's really important because if you don't have that built into the contract, you basically have to go back to these people and say, hey, I know we're done and I know you've already been paid probably very little at this point, but we need you to do extra work. Um, and if it's built into the contract, that's something I think people can anticipate and that you could point to a contract and say, no, you promised us you'd give us another five days. We'll work with your schedule because I know it's six months later, but you know, we need you for these extra days because this, the distributor wants to do a little bit of work to the movie. So um, I think from a, practical, from a practical production perspective, you need to keep that in mind. And then, again, from a distribution perspective, I think you have to keep in mind, you know, all of the, um, all of the obligations they're going to have or that the distributor is going to assume. So I think the idea is just not to give away too much that makes it, you know, unappealing for a distributor to, to acquire. If a, if a distributor is acquiring a movie that you shot for, you know, 50 grand and you have, let's say, 100 grand in deferred compensation that they have to assume and, you know, a total of 15% of their profits have to go to the, have to go to the casting crew, that's a much more appealing process than one where you've promised, you know, gross points to an actor and all of this and the studio is looking at it and saying, well, our share for this movie is only, you know, 8% left over for, for a distributor and everything else goes to these guys that have already been, been involved. So I think the two things, if you're, if you're an independent filmmaker today, the two things you really need to keep in mind are that your film will likely be changed later and that you have to factor in all of the, you know, you have to factor in making it appealing for a distributor to acquire, which generally means keeping the budget as low as you can and keeping the consistent ongoing financial obligations to someone as low as possible. If I were doing a deal today as an independent producer, I would probably try to, you know, get as much deferred compensation up front for a fixed fee, you know, against, you know, against the, the minimum guarantee when I sell it so that, you know, I can go to the studio and say, look, you know, with the exception of a few percent, you know, profits here and there, you can own this movie for a million dollars or 500,000 outright. Everyone gets paid. I can use that money to pay the talent. And then you're free and clear and can distribute however you want. I think that's probably the, one of the best models to do rather than coming to a distributor and saying, hey, here's my movie. I need 500 grand as a minimum guarantee from you, and you owe 30% of your profits to these guys, and you owe box office bonuses to all these guys. Um, I think it's just a matter of structuring a deal that makes financial sense to someone who's going to be essentially acquiring this and distributing it and hoping to make their money back. That's some really great practical advice. I'm actually uh, very happy that you, you, you took that question and kind of 
brought it into that that kind of practical uh, those those two very practical elements for for filmmakers. Uh, any last thoughts that bef- before we kind of jump off here that you want to leave our audience with? Just uh, anything at all that you think people should be thinking about when it comes to uh, the business of film? You know, I, I think just that you know the advice that everyone I want to jump on the bandwagon is get a lawyer. <laughs> Always get a lawyer before you do anything. Um, you know, whether it's a, you know, whether it's, whether you're an independent producer making a movie or a writer that's going to sign an option agreement, you know, you need someone with that practical legal experience to go through and tell you where the pitfalls are. Um, and I know that that can be expensive depending on the attorney. It can be, you know, thousands of dollars potentially. But, you know, it's kind of one of those things where the amount that it'll save you on the back end if something goes wrong is, you know, is, it's so much of a better deal. So I would just recommend before anybody you know jumps into this and starts spending money that they make sure that their contracts, whether it's for themselves or for the people they're working with or hiring, are just where they need to be. That they you know they've got a system in place and they've got a contract in place that protects them and kind of contemplate any you know any potential issues down the road. Because the last thing you want is to you know have this movie essentially all made and everything and realize that. For example, you didn't get the actor to sign. The actor's agreement didn't have a work for hire clause in that, so that means you can't fill the movie without their permission. You know, it's, you want to avoid those speed bumps by making sure that you've got everything wrapped up ahead of time. So I would say just make sure you know a lawyer looks over everything at the end, but just you know just bells and whistles. Make sure they got everything they need um, in your contract before you sign, before you put pen to paper. Um, and it's just you know look out, seek out resources out there. Um, you know whether it's in, whether it's uh, other co- other independent producers or filmmakers or you know people uh, like me or like you, Jesse, that have these resources available where it's just advice that you're giving out and that you're trying to share with people. Absorb as much of that as you can so that you can hopefully learn from other people's mistakes and uh, and not run into them yourself. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, just I, I know we, we we covered so many topics. Uh, I feel like we've just actually just gotten started and uh maybe we'll have to do this again sometime uh but for those who are listening again check out jeff uh he's on twitter at j willis 81 that's j w i two l's i s 81 uh check him out there and if you want to uh connect with us you can do that at craft truck uh when we we, we love to hear from you we appreciate hearing from you and uh, of course you can send us an email or any questions at uh, coffee at crafttruck.com. Jeff, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, eh, enjoy the sunny weather over there. Yeah, it was great. We'll, uh, we'll have to do it again sometime. So, uh, so much for having me on. Pleasure, man. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.